The title of this morning's talk is Looking After One and All. Our culture confronts us time and time again with the dilemma of whether we should care for ourselves or for others, for me or for you, for us or for them. Today I will develop the argument that this dilemma is an inevitable result of the artificial separation that we have concocted between you and me, between us and them. No, it's, I did turn it on, yes, yes. Drop that invented separation and the dilemma dissolves, evaporates, vanishes. Well, it's not that simple, but it's still, it evaporates. So this talk examines the nature of that invented separation and then examines what becomes possible when we manage to drop it. So, about the separation. More often than not in our life, there is this sense of disconnection, of separation pervading our lives. At times, we can trace back this sense to some disappointment, to some experience, at times even gruesome experiences in our life, as a consequence of which we decided that the best thing to do was to turn off our hearts. And we ended up barricading ourselves behind an overwhelming sense of me and mine and excluding from the perimeter of our life all that does not fit into the category of mine, of our possession. Even our partner can become a possession. Now, this, this is also true, this sense of separation is also true even if in the absence of any particular disappointment of disagreeable experience. Because anyway, the overwhelming message of our culture is for each one of us to look after ourselves, period. 
period. It, it's true, of course, the social syllabus encourages us to be good, good, charitable. But that's just a fig leaf to mask an ingrained behavior based on selfishness. In fact, the centerpiece of our social syllabus is the pursuit of self-interest. There's even an elaborate economic theory that justify this by claiming, with some reasonable excuses or even reasons, claiming that selfishness is the engine of economic process, process, progress. In fact, the claim of this theory is that selfishness is the only possible engine of economic process, progress. This claim, of course, is not limited to individual self-interest, but it also extends to groups of individuals, partners in business, even nation. But anyway, when it's not the matter of me versus you, it becomes a matter of us versus them. No provisions are made to deal with a world that may be undivided as the natural world actually is, inevitably. Communal work, the notion of the commons, is for aborigines, not for us. We are into privatizing anything. For the civilized world, it's always us, our group, nation, above all others. If your group should fail, then you do not count. Period. They're out. So that's the prevailing syllabus, as I call it. There's a prevailing atmosphere. Fortunately, underneath all this cultural conditioning, there is a deep yearning for interconnection and love. Yes, love. A yearning that at times manifests vividly and spontaneously, as in the love uh, of a newly born to his or her mother. And to repeat, our culture eventually gets in the way of such uh, connectedness. But not all cultures do. It's important to remember that. Take, for instance, the Zulus of South Africa. In their language, 
is an extraordinary word, which I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but spells out like Ubuntu. Its meaning is so unfamiliar to us that it can only be translated in English or in any other language that I know by a long sentence. It is. That's the translation then. I am because we are. Sorry. Yes. I am because we are, and we are because I am. Which could also say, I am because you are, and, uh, and you are because I am. Equipment. Therefore, the term Ubuntu in that culture reminds all those who utter it that they only make sense as part of a partnership that includes, in fact, all humans if not all beings as well. This sense of Ubuntu is also central to Buddhist understanding of life. Nagarjuna, who was a, a Buddhist philosopher in India in the, in the third century, puts it unambiguously when he said, without one, there are not many. Without many, one is not possible. Again, if he had known Zulu, all he had to say was Ubuntu. <laughs> but philosophical thoughts do not have enough traction to bring us round the path of interconnection. The motivation to move in that direction has to come, needs to come from the inner reverberations of our own actions. For instance, in discovering that when we go for refuge in the Sangha, it's one of the um, ceremonies, if you wish, done in the Buddhist tradition. We find ourselves truly at home. We find ourselves that we are part of the Sangha, that the Sangha is not different from us. Well, the Sangha wouldn't exist without us. Ubuntu again. When in any other circumstances, when being with others, we, we come to recognize that we fulfill our humanity by sharing in our diversity. The other person has something that complements us, and we feel whole by being with others. That can be, of course, part of a one-to-one -one partnership, but it can be, and, and I'm referring most largely to the being with a large group. 
Now, even in the landscape of our culture, there are occasional opportunities for interconnection. They are briefed, brief, they are scheduled, but they occur. And one place where they occur is in the celeb celebration of carnival. This country is, seems to be limited to New Orleans. You know, carnival can be a dangerous thing. It's subversive, you know, it's subversive. It subverts the social order. But if you go to Brazil, it lasts for at least a month, you know. <laughs> and, and I could go on, really, with that, but I'm going to go on. Because, well, there are certainly other occasions in which uh, things like music, for instance, become the tool for interconnection. Either because we sing together, because we listen together, because we are stirred up together, we may even be dancing together, but just, just vibrating together to the sounds of the music. This is certainly has quite important social impacts, as it did uh, in this country, particularly in the 60s. Uh, cultures close, closer to nature have a, a whole host of means to celebrate the c and cultivate, actually, their connectedness. It is said that some time ago, I don't know what this, I don't think it continues, the Senoi Indians of Malaysia would begin each day by getting together in the communal unit, uh, could be the family, large extended family unit or any community, they get together in this hall that they share, and they share the dreams of the night before. How extraordinary, because dreams are very intimate and they want to be part of each other's dreams. And, and I say how extraordinary because, in a very small way, Raquel and me do that every morning at breakfast, too. Sometimes there are revelations at times. We dream, but we don't remember what we dreamt, etc. But it's a, also that practice helps you remember the dreams. In fact, uh, not far from here, in Kingston, south of here, the same side of the river, there is um, an institute called the Deep Listening Institute. It has a lot to do with Pauline Oliveros. And, and her partner, um, a woman called Ioni, she runs every year a dream festival. 
And during that festival, uh, there's one night where people are encouraged to bring their sleeping bags and spend the night there and sleep there and in the morning share the dreams. And of course, you know, this, this sharing, this making community, that's what we do very much here. In the silence and in the inquiry. Yes. And if in, in you putting up with my discourse. Sure. That's because just a little joke. But that you put up with. And you know, we share. We really share. And and I get feedback sometimes in the inquiry. So, there is a culture that is uh, divisive, very much so, sometimes to the point of getting some societies into civil wars, you know. Don't have to illustrate that, there's too many going on. And, uh, and then there's also, in a much uh, smaller scale, but real and important scale and opportunities for interaction. Let's be grateful for those opportunities. Now let me, in this coming part of the talk, let me look more closely at the various ways that are available to us to, for caring for another, caring for ourselves, and caring for the world. Let's start with caring for another person. Just as when mothers, fathers, caregivers nurture their babies or somebody else's baby. Joanna Macy's refers to this in a book within, I think it's an extraordinary title. It's called World as Lover, World as Self. And at some, in some part of the book, she wonders what can inspire us to look after a baby that's not our own. So she goes to, to a nurse in a hospital and talks to her and asks her. Here's the response she gets. Oh, actually, this is a paragraph. When I admired a nurse for her strength and devotion in keeping long hours in the children's ward, she shrugged off my compliment as if it was entirely misplaced. It's not, not my strength, you know, she said. I get it from them. 
nodding at the rows of cots and cribs. And again she says, they give me what I need to keep going. And so now Joanna says, whether tending a garden or cooking in a soup kitchen, there is a se sense of something being sustained by something beyond one's own individual power, a sense of being acted through. It's close to the religious concept of grace, but distinct from the traditional Western understanding of grace as it does not require a belief in God or a supernatural agency. It simply, one simply finds oneself empowered to act on behalf of other beings, on behalf of the larger whole. And the empowerment itself seems to con come through that of those for whose sake one acts. It is in situations like this, like the one that Joanna Macy describes, that we experience love and kindness as uh, an act of kinship engulfing us. Now, here, let me make, as an aside perhaps, bring in a footnote, make a, a caveat. Least we fail to distinguish the genuine feelings that result from an openness of heart and feelings inspired more by the eye than anything else that result from an attachment to a role. The distinction between th the two becomes absolutely glaring when we continue to be attached to a role that is no longer relevant, to a role that may be even counterproductive in this situation. Consider, for instance, the situation of parents who are reluctant to let their grown-up children fend for themselves. Such parents are so attached to cultivating the image of being needed that they turn a blind eye to the likelihood that in doing so they may be doing some more harm and good. So, end of a footnote. Let me now talk about caring for oneself, a very important item here. When our loving kindness comes from an open heart, then it transcends all boundaries, not just those separating 
mine and not mine, but also those separating you and me. Consequently, looking after self and other become part of the same move. Not a conflict, but something where caring for one implies caring for the other. The Buddha highlights this very beautiful in the parable of the acrobat. I've, I've shared this parable with uh, this group a few years ago, but it, it fits so well. I, you know, I, I'm going to risk uh, boring you by repeating it. It's uh, from the scriptures. Once upon a time, an acrobat, having erected his bamboo pole, addressed his assistant, guy called Frying Pan, that's a translation from the Pali, his assistant Frying Pan as follows. Come, my dear Frying Pan, climb up the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. As you say, Master, replied Frying Pan. And climbing up the bamboo pole, he stood on his master's shoulders. So then the acrobat said to his assistant, Now you watch after my balance, my dear frying pan, and I look after your balance. With us looking after one another and protecting one another, we'll show our craft, receive some payment, and come down safely from the bamboo pole. When he had said this, frying pan responded, No, no, master, that will never do. You must look after your own balance, and I will look after my balance with each of us looking after ourselves and protecting ourselves, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and come down safely from the bamboo pole. Now, all this conversation was happening in front of the Buddha. So, what's the Buddha to say? Here it goes. That's the method there, the Blessed One said. It's just as Frying Pan said to the acrobat. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. How does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, developing, making it grow. How does one look after oneself by looking after others? By patience, non-harming, loving kindness, and caring. Again, protecting oneself, one protects others, 
protecting others, one protects oneself. And Pema Chodron, one very wise uh, Buddhist teacher from the Tibetan tradition, says much the same thing as the Buddha and frying pan had said in, uh, in the recent issue of uh, Tricycle. I'll just read a few segments. She says, I've often heard the Dalai Lama say that having compassion for oneself is the basis for developing compassion for others. Chogyam Trungpa, who was Pema Chodron's teacher, Chogyam Trungpa also taught this when he spoke about how genuinely, how to genuinely help others, how to work for the benefits of others without interference from our own agendas. He represented this as a three-step process. Step one is maitri, maitri, sorry, a Sanskrit word meaning loving-kindness to his own being. Here, Chagyam Trumpa used the term in its unlimited friendliness towards ourselves, with the clear implication that this leads naturally to unlimited friendliness towards others. <coughs> Step two, in genuinely helping others, is communicating from the heart. To the degree that we trust ourselves, we have no need to close down on others. They can strong, uh, evoke strong emotions in us, but we still don't withdraw. Based on this ability to stay open, we arrive at step three, the difficult to come by fruition. That is, the ability to put others before ourselves and help them without expecting anything in return. When we build a house, we start by creating a stable foundation. Just so. When we wish to benefit others, we start by developing warmth of friendship for ourselves. It's common, however, for people to have a distorted view of this friendliness and warmth. We'll say, for instance, that we need to take care for, uh, of ourselves, but how many of us really know how to do this? When clinging to security and comfort and warding off pain becomes the focus of our lives, we don't end up feeling cared for, and we certainly don't feel motivated to extend ourselves to others. We end up feeling more threatened or irritable, more unable to relax. 
I know many people who have spent years exercising daily, getting massages, doing yoga, faithfully following one food or vitamin regimen after another, pursuing spiritual teachers of different styles of meditations, all in the name of taking care of themselves. Then something bad happens to them, and all those years don't seem to have added to the inner strength and kindness for themselves that they need in order to relate with what's happening. And they certainly don't add up to being able to help others, other people, or the environment. When taking care of ourselves is all about me, I would say footnote here, it implies a separation. So when taking care of, of ourselves is all about me, it never gets at the unshakable tenderness and confidence that we'll need when everything falls apart. When we start to develop my tree for ourselves, that is, unconditional acceptance of ourselves, then we're really taking care of ourselves in a way that pays off. We feel more at home with our bodies and minds and more at home in the world. As our kindness for ourselves grows, so does our kindness for other people. When we understand deeply that Sorry, when we understand deeply that caring for ourselves or for another are part of the same move, same stroke, then this, it becomes equally obvious that this applies as well to caring for all, for all beings, for all the world, in fact. And with that, the world takes a different texture. Caring for all means that the euphoria of one percolates to all, and, and yes, that the grief of one likewise percolates to all. We're all in this together. Our hearts grieve for the pain of others as mine did, and many others did recently, watching on TV the the, what happened to the victims of the earthquakes of Haiti and Chile. In fact, there was somebody here who was in Haiti short, shortly after them event. And just as our hearts can grieve for others, for the pain of others, so our hearts can also rejoice by the joy of others. Caring for all means that we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to the pleasure and the pain of all creatures human or otherwise. 
that we allow our mind to be embedded in the world over and over again. We are acted through by the world. What an extraordinary, beautiful way to live. This embeddedness, of course, embeddedness, of course, is very tangible in the area of our body. The physical upheavals affecting the planet, not just the occasional and horrendous earthquake, but the inevitable progress of ecological disasters. impinge very directly on, eventually, on our personal physical welfare. That includes not just the effects of global warming, but the whole sea of troubles, for instance, that are resulting from uh, an economic system that has gone berserk. We haven't felt it all yet, just as we haven't felt the, the consequences of global warming yet. But there doesn't seem to be any solution for it. And, and yes, uh, physical well-being is the most tangible aspect of the problem. The planet However, it's not just our house, it's our home. Insofar as a house is concerned, so far as this building is concerned, the things that matter are relatively simple and perhaps doable, not so much with the planet, but anyway. You know, we have to make sure that the roof doesn't leak, that the windows close properly, that the heating system works, uh, the plumbing is adequate. The doable things, at least in the scale of our home, planetary scale, is far more difficult. But the, the real important thing in the home is not just the physical house. Is the the spirit of its dwellers, <coughs> of its one dweller, if you live uh, by ourselves, its various dwellers, if we li live with others. <coughs> if we live ourselves, it's a state of our mind. If we live with others, it's a state of our relationship and our minds as well. Can the dwellers find ways of giving expression to their interconnectedness, to their love and kindness, in regard, with regards both each other and the world. Let's hope that they do find the way to do that. So, our understanding of ecology cannot be limited to supervising the physical 
our physical surroundings, our house, if you wish. It needs to expand to deal with the complexities and the lack of harmony at times. In our true home, which is our mind, individual and collectively. We need to understand not just the ecology of our bodies, but also the ecology of our minds, of our collective mind. I've learned much about the ecology of mind from a poet that, who touches me very deeply. And you probably know her. She's Mary Oliver. And uh, in closing, let me share with you this poem of hers called Reckless Poem. Today, again, I'm hardly myself. It happens over and over again. It's heaven sent. It flows through me like a blue wave. Green leaves, you may believe this or not, have once or twice burst from the tips of my fingers. <laughs> Somewhere deep in the woods, in the reckless seizure of spring. Though, of course, I also know that other, that other song, the sweet passion of oneness. Just yesterday, I watched an ant crossing a path through the tumbled pine needles she toiled. And I thought, she will never live another life but this one. And I thought, if she lives her life with all her strength, is she not wonderful and wise? And I continued up this miraculous pyramid of everything until I came to myself. And still, even in these northern woods, on those hills, on these hills of sand, I have, I have flown from the window of myself to become white heron, great whale, fogs, hedgehog, camel. Oh, sometimes already my body has felt like the body of a flower. Sometimes, already my heart is a red parrot perched among strange, dark trees, flapping and screaming. Let's just sit for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.